to the Creative Process Podcast, a discussion with artists about what goes on behind the scenes when they're creating their work. I'm your host, Dave Hopper. On this episode, I speak with photographer Jordan Baumgarten. Jordan is a Philadelphia-based photographer whose work focuses on notions of violence, love, and loss. His relationship to Philadelphia is deep and polarizing. He was born there, his parents went to college there, he met and married his wife in Philadelphia, and he also has nearly been killed and witnessed some of the worst tragedies imaginable in the city. He's watched it grow and change as he has grown and changed beside it. Those experiences and that complicated relationship to place is this cornerstone and remains the driving force in his work and life. Jordan received an MFA in photography from the Rhode Island School of Design and has exhibited his work nationally and internationally. In fall of 2013, he published his first monograph with Parts and Labor Books, and he is currently working on his second book. Jordan Baumgarten, thank you for being on the Creative Process Podcast. Happy to be here. So you got recommended by our last guest, Laura Swanson. Can you tell us how you know her? Yeah, I met Laura, I want to say it was 2009. Um, we both went to grad school at RISD, and we had met, I think it was outside of a show at the museum. And we've been good friends since. Um, we talk quite often. You came fairly highly recommended. Um, she said you would be Uh-oh. very sharp and fun to talk to. <laughs> Oh, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so do you like her work? What do you like about her work? I like her work. I think it is really difficult to be funny and smart. Yeah. Yeah, she pulls Um, that off really well. And she pulls it off really well because I think a lot of funny work just ends up falling short Um, intellectually. uh, Mm -hmm. It does, and, and I think that she's able to balance that in a, in a really articulate way. That brings me actually to my first question. Uh, I followed you on Instagram after she recommended you, and you cover some tough subjects, I would say, in your work. Um, I would say dealing yeah. with poverty, I guess, is your main focus? Um, I mean, it, it varies, but, you know, poverty is a big issue in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and it sort of manifests in, in very different ways. So, you know, walking out my door, it's there. And uh, it, it's become a part of my work. Um, yeah. So you balance it a little bit with humor, I would say, on your Instagram. Is that a tough balance to keep going? No. Um, you know, what, what I jokingly say is uh, I teach at the University of the Arts, and uh, I teach photography, and I let the students follow me there. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I, I jokingly say is I like to try and confuse the students about what my personal life is like (laughs) so it'll be some very you know serious things and then a picture of my dog and the wife some food we made and (laughs) and then some jokes but i don't find it it difficult because i'm a funny guy Mm -hmm. i think i hope (laughs) uh that's what i was told yeah yeah you know i try to i try to be funny and my work is serious because i think maybe that's where i I work out some of the darkness that I have going on inside. I think a lot of artists do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't really see it as a as a difficult thing. I think if it was all super serious all the time on Instagram um, or in life, it would be really exhausting. But life is really funny sometimes, so it's important to sort of balance that out. And do they find that humor enlightening? Uh, I don't know. They don't engage with me about what goes on Instagram outside of school. Where did your creative process start? 
Um, I think it's like a combination of reacting to experiences that I have and maybe developing questions after those experiences and using photography uh, or writing as a means to sort of answer those questions. So I think that the, the questions send me out the door uh, to investigate and ultimately it, you know, transforms into something very different from where the question started. So you said you go out your door and you see poverty and stuff that you want to shoot. So how does a individual project start out of that? It's, it's hard to say that sort of I, I walk out the door with a project in mind. Mm-hmm. I just I go outside and I start taking photographs and I make work and I talk to people and I walk around and take more pictures and come back to my house and print out the pictures and put them on the wall and uh, just keep working and keep working and looking at the images that I have and ask questions and see the work that's starting to sort of come together and then sort of reverse engineer it backwards. You know, so I have all of these images and then I'll sort of work on an edit from that and see if there's any gaps and go back out and make work in response to those gaps. So I I can't really say that much of my personal work has intentionally started as a project. It's all just sort of started for me making work based on a series of questions or concerns that I had. And it just sort of evolved from there. That is interesting because I think most people that start a project at least have some kind of inkling or a sentence written down or something they've been turning around in their head for a while that they've wanted to cover. And that's how they start out instead of working backwards. I think that's the first time I've heard that. Yeah, it's um, the, the idea was introduced to me back in, in grad school. I had a professor named Steve Smith that gave me a reading on how Robert Frank reverse engineered his project, The Americans. Hmm. And after reading that, that really sort of opened my eyes to how people make work and how you can make work. So I think it's just a matter of sort of finding out what worked for me. And that sort of lends credence to the idea of just get out there and shoot instead of having a perfect idea all set before you start a project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think a lot of the times I, I... may not go out with the intention of taking photographs. I'll just walk outside, maybe camera in my pocket or camera over my shoulder, and I see things and make photographs or just walk someplace. Sometimes I'll meet people and talk to them and not photograph them. Um, So it's just go outside. Like, just go outside (laughs) in general. Like, you may not have to make photographs, but just, like, just go outside. (laughs) Just get off the couch. Get off the couch. Put your phone down. Stop scrolling through Facebook. In fact, delete your Facebook. Yeah, I wish I could. And, um, no, do it. You should, I, I did it a long time ago. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> it is terrible. So I want to talk about the project that you mentioned in the email we were talking, Slow Blink Open Mouth, that you just finished. Is this one of the yeah. ones where you reverse engineered it? Yeah. I mean, I think... So, so Sloping Open Mouth was made in our, our neighborhood in Kensington in Philly. And I think when we first moved here, I had seen things that I've never seen happen out in public. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was curious about those things, you know, whether it be prostitution and drugs, sort of everything out in, in the open. 
So, you know, I definitely just went outside to try and understand what it is and understand people's situations and understand the context of the neighborhood that I live in. And sort of the more that I, I went out and made photographs, the more that I start to see these, these themes re-emerge. Uh, and then, you know, I would do a little bit of research, and then I would write down some ideas, and then I would go back out and shoot more. And, you know, so it was sort of like, rather than it being this linear process, mm-hmm. you know, started A and Z, it's sort of more like a, uh, a, a pendulum. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts yeah. over at the at the other side, and it swings over, and you learn some things over there, and then you swing back to where you were on the other side, and then it just keeps going back and forth, sort of a call and response. I remember the, seeing the uh, pendulum at the Ben Franklin Institute. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> ties in with Philadelphia. Um, did it get easier as you kept going out? Was it tough to start at the beginning when you were seeing all these new things? Did you feel like you could just go out and photograph them? Or did it take some time before you actually started going out and photograph what you were seeing? Um, you know, it took some time. I was uh, nervous, uh, understandably so. Mm-hmm. Um, also trying to understand sort of the, the codes of what was going on. Uh, how to read the city, how to understand where I shouldn't be, maybe where I should, um, what areas to avoid, what areas to go to. And I think the more that I went outside and the more that I walked around, I started to see sort of rhythms appear. And I, I started to feel a lot more comfortable. And I think the things that I you know, looked at were either confirmations of those rhythms. You know, when you, when you can make a photograph that confirms that rhythm. Mm-hmm. or make a photograph that sort of shows an interruption in that rhythm. So you found a line out there that you didn't want to cross, and you found a way sort of to get up to it and stay there? Uh, uh, what do you mean exactly? Like, you say the place you shouldn't go and the places you should. Just like, and you were talking about the rhythms, like you find out where you can go to make this photograph, but that you're not in total danger. Yeah, I mean, at, at, in, in the beginning, I think I was really concerned about where I shouldn't go. And then sort of as things went on, I think I got a little bit more reckless with it (laughs) and definitely started going some places to make photographs that I had no business being. Right. And I think if anyone's looked at the work, they can tell which ones they are. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, But there are also a lot of ones that didn't make that edit. The uh, the edit of the of slow blink open mouth probably comes from around 400 plus images. Wow. So the the images that were not selected for that project, uh, some of them were just like a little bit, a little bit too much. That mm-hmm. sort of the act of making the photograph was maybe more important to learn from than the actual photograph itself. What is your process of editing it down to a complete edit? Uh, a complete edit. So I. I print out all of the images. I cover my studio with them. I put them in little dummy piles, you know, like these are pictures of trees. (laughs) This is a person. And I just organize them into really basic, stupid piles. And then from there, I start to look at the, the divisions within those dummy piles and then start to look at how the images are operating, what the vocabulary of the photographs are, what the images are starting to say. And then I just start 
organizing them on the wall into an edit. You keep moving them around and taking some down, adding yeah. one, all that good stuff. Yeah, taking some down, adding some. Um, I think the project went through probably about eight to ten different iterations, maybe more. Did you have people come over and look at each one, or were you just sort of taking a break from them and come back to it? I would take a break from it and come back to it, but I, I would be absolutely nothing, and that project would be absolutely nothing without the creative community that I have here. And, they must and have had I some, had lots of studio visits come through. They must have had some strong visual reactions looking at it. They, they did, um, but my friends are, are pretty tuned in, and they knew where I was coming from mm-hmm. and really helped me practice restraint with the work. Did you have a set number of mount you wanted, total images in the final edit, or did you just let the story do it for you? I just, I just let the story do it for me. I didn't want it to go too long because that's kind of an exhaustive process yeah. uh, for the viewer to look at the work. It mm-hmm. would just get really, really tiring. Right. So I just kept going until it started to feel like it was done. Um, and then it ultimately ended. And naturally, it sort of ended up with the amount of images that a lot of photo books tend to have. Like in that area of around 50 is pretty good. So I'm like, all right, I'm I'm on to something. So uh, getting it published, you were saying you're looking to get it published. What is that process like? Uh, Well, I have been working with my friend Joel Evie, who is a really great designer. And we've sort of been working on putting together a bunch of dummies together. And I've just been sending it out. Sending it out to all the people that I think that would enjoy it. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's very specific work. Right, exactly. And and I think that a lot of people would find it really difficult, and that I, I understand completely. I'm appreciative of that, and I respect that. So it's, you know, looking at my bookshelves, looking at books that I really like, books that I think have subject matter that are in line with the work that I made, and shoot them some PDFs. And a lot of the times you don't hear back, and sometimes you do, which is awesome. <laughs> it keeps you going, right? It gives you a reason to wake up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, from that project, my favorite is the boy with the boxing gloves, I guess outside of his house with the car. Uh, I just wonder what his story is when I'm looking at it. Uh, that's Luca. Luca, that's actually on my block. Hmm. That is our neighbor, Luca. He lives about five houses down. Mm -hmm. His brother, Marco, was teaching him how to box. It was just like a really sweet... And then his dad pulled the car out. The sun was sort of glowing in the top left. And it just seemed like a really beautiful picture to make. And in the context of the rest of the work, it just... That picture almost makes me the saddest because he seems to be the inheritor of the world. You know, this is where he lives this is what his future is going to be and the way he's just kind of standing there it looks almost like he's waiting for someone that hasn't shown up instead of like having people around yeah which is really fascinating that you know you read it that way it just goes to show that photography is not um not good at capturing reality (laughs) (laughs) so i wanted to ask you about your style because it almost looks like it has like a still life quality to it and who influenced your style, and how long did it take you to sort of hone in on it? Um, you know, I have, there, there's a, I don't know. That's a difficult question. <laughs> it's a difficult question, David. <laughs> I have a few of those, just um, in case. You... 
Um, no, I think I just I go out and I, I I make work a lot and make the pictures that feel natural to me. But I also look at tons of work, mm-hmm. and I think I pull in some of the stuff that you know is relevant and push out some of the stuff that isn't. So I think with that work, you know, there's definitely um, some Todd Papa George in there. Uh, his Passing Through Eden project. There's definitely some Gregory Halpern in there. Boris Mikulov, Z- Antonio Zubanuva, Anders Peterson, John Gossage, sort of like all of those people have definitely helped to shape my vision. Is there ever a time you have to sort of step away from looking at work and just make your own? Or do you ever do you always feel like you need to be consuming photographs? That's a good question, too. Uh, <laughs> I try and look at as much work as possible, but I, I try not to let it overly dictate what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to look at as much work as you possibly can because, you know, we are where we are because of the artists' shoulders that have come before us. Mm-hmm. We stand on the shoulders of the artists that have come before us, excuse me. Right. So to sort of understand the context in which we make work is important. And to understand what's going on now is important. But I definitely spend more time making photographs than I do spend looking at it. Right. And I try and spend as much time not on the internet because <laughs> it's just like a cacophonous void of of everyone and their mother posting pictures. <laughs> and it follows you around now in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, it's it's awful. Uh yeah, it follows <laughs> you around. It's there's all Instagram is just, you know, it's I participate in it, but there's so many pictures. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And and I think it's also there, there's no hierarchy of information on the internet sometimes, you know, everyone is able to contribute to it. So I think to a certain extent, photo books are really peaceful for me because, you know, they're, they're very contained and they're very, they're very worked on, you know, they're edited very carefully and, you know, it's passed a lot of processes in order to make sure that that work gets out there in the world. So uh, that hierarchy of information of photo books for me is is very helpful. It's almost like um, an album for a musician. It's like a completed work that kind of stands on its own and you don't have to keep adding to or scroll through on your phone. It's like, this is the work and it's done and now I can move on and do something else. Yeah, I mean, there there isn't a level of finality to work, but I mean, work is never done. So, you know, <laughs> you have artists that are adding adding to it or making projects in response to it, and um, the projects grow. But yeah, it, there, you print the book, you, it's done, it's over, you can put it on your shelf. So I wanted to ask about, you've talked a little bit about this, but getting access to some of these photographs. I guess you don't really get access, you just kind of give yourself access to photograph it but it was ever been a time when you've asked for access for any of these or are you just there documenting you know there's definitely a lot of dialogue with some of those people and the photographs are made in a way to make it look like i just happened upon it Mm -hmm. so some of them are somewhat staged some of them are moments afterwards um definitely ask but sometimes it was just taken Mm-hmm. Which, which is the nature of, I think, a photographer that's out in the world making work. Oh, yeah. To see something and make those photographs. But uh, there was definitely a lot of interaction and sometimes, you know, paying to make certain photographs. I guess a lot of people have, like, a thing about paying for a photograph like this. I've, I've heard both sides. So you come on the side of just get the photograph? 
I mean, it's you just get the photograph, but also like I don't understand why not to pay, or like wh- I'm making a picture. I have everything to profit from that. Right. Yeah, and I forget, so I forget the argument against it. Above? I guess I don't know. I guess because it's like I guess it's like it's not the true nature or something like that. Yeah, but I think like once you start to understand that, like there is no true nature of photography. Once you're standing there and once you involve the camera, you have completely changed the dynamic that already existed. I mean, I guess some of the people I photograph, they need money. Mm-hmm. You know, whether, whether it's for food or for drugs is not my business. And, and for me, it was just, I don't know, it's, it's easy to make the photograph happen when you offer someone money. So that, that's true. Um, but also, you know, like I said, I've, I have everything to, to benefit from that power dynamic and me having these photographs. So, you know, just I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with paying for images. You know, Boris Mikulov got people drunk and gave them money and did whatever he needed to do. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'd get people drunk, <laughs> but I'm sure I have somehow passively from giving money. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you mentioned in the statement for Slobink Open Mouth, you mentioned that you had to go to the hospital after someone stuck you with a used heroin needle. So. Can you give yeah. us a short version of that story? Yeah. Um, no, so I was just, I, I would go on these, these walks, and it was pretty much the same loop every time. Mm-hmm. And I got to a place, there was a, there was a woman that was sort of collecting things off the ground, and we got to talking, and she was just swinging her bag back and forth while we were talking, and the bag struck my hand, and I just started bleeding. And I looked at the bag, and she was collecting used heroin needles off the street for an art project. And uh, they weren't capped, and she wasn't putting them into a protective thing. And they were just like a bag full of dirty needles. Yeah, that was that was maybe one of the scariest experiences of my entire life. I would bet. How long were you in the hospital for it? Just like in and no, out? No, I just, I went. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was in and out. Um, a lot of questions <laughs> from the hospital staff that like, oh, so you work at a hospital? I'm like, no, I don't work at a hospital. <laughs> and, and I think a, a lot of them get stuck with needles accidentally at work. So they yeah, were just yeah. trying to understand what happened. And I think I had to tell the story of what happened like 15 times. And, um, you know, they, they gave me, you know, HIV antiretrovirals to sort of just in case there was anything on the needles. And I had to be on those med- that medication for, for some time. And then I had to go see a special uh, doctor out on, out, outside the city who continued me on, those, uh, on that medication. And, uh, yeah, I got blood tested often, and every, everything is fine. I'm good. Well, that's good. Physically. <laughs> I'm good. I wanted to, going off on the statement... Another question. You don't have the statement on the website. So what? how's your decision on putting an artist statement before people look at a gallery or not having it there? I, you know, this, this is something that I, I, I struggle with. Uh, I wish that I had a really good answer for that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think if I'm applying with the work and if I'm sending the work out, I'm, I'm definitely going to... Um, send, send sort of a statement with it so people know what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to 
direct people too hard on what to look at and, and what to think about the work. Because I think that work can be read a lot of different ways. And it's not necessarily important for me that everyone, you know, that has access to my website is going to know exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I struggle with that. You know, is it important for people to understand my creative intention or not? You don't want to lead someone somewhere when they could have gone somewhere else while looking at your work, I guess. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the audience can be more creative um, with how they unpack work than the person that made the work could ever be. And I I want to get in the way of that relationship. It's almost like Catch-22, I guess, when you're thinking about it. Do I or don't I? Yeah, you know, they can look at it and not understand it, or you show it to them, you give them the statement, and they know exactly, without a doubt, what you mean, and they're not left to explore. Gotcha. So it can be a little problematic. I always think about, like, if it's in a book form, does it have text? Mm. Part of me wants to say no. It's a book of photographs. I want it to be the book of photographs. You know, that's... Yeah. Photographs are the words. You want the photographs to tell the whole story. Yeah, absolutely. As much as they could. (laughs) (laughs) When you're making all these photographs of tough subjects, do you feel disconnected? Um, I I think that with, with some images there is is a disconnect that sort of has to happen to in a sense sort of like preserve my my emotional well-being mm-hmm. um and i think that definitely comes across in some of the photographs but i'm definitely very present when i'm there uh and almost hyper vigilant to sort of make sure that i'm very aware of everything that's going around me uh, I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, it's it's tough. What I found, I haven't been in anywhere like that or any dangerous situations, but I found that it's easy to disappear into what you see in the viewfinder and not sort of check your surroundings. So that's an interesting way to shoot for me would be to have to keep my eye around everything that's happening instead of just concentrating on photographing. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. Um, I am 100% incredibly aware of everything that's going around me. Which, which is what made the heroin needle thing so weird. Because that was the, the first time that I'd actually let my guard down uh, when I was out making photographs. And it ended up just being like a stupid artist practicing like really unsafe and reckless behavior. <laughs> uh, which, you know, there you go, artists. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, when, I, when I'm out there making work, I'm, I'm hyper, hyper vigilant and hyper aware. Uh, all the sounds, all the smells, everything. Do you find that hard to turn off if you're photographing just like around your house or family moments? No, no, not at all. Um, You know, at the same time that I was making work in my neighborhood, I was making pictures in my backyard of my neighbors. Yeah. And, you know, it was, uh, rather than it being difficult to turn off. It's actually, it was really lovely to make pictures really lovingly and to feel comfort when, when making photographs and to not be, uh, so sort of like jazzed up and, um, on alert. Yeah. Just, you know, like code yellow all the time. That must be exhausting. Yeah. I don't do it anymore. (laughs) You know, I'm not making those pictures anymore. 
So speaking of that, what is your next project that you're going to do? Do you have an idea or something you're working on now? Yeah. So right now I'm, I'm balancing two things. Um, I've been making pictures in my backyard of, of my neighbors. We have this huge back lot. It's the size of three house lots. Wow. And we have a fire pit and we grow vegetables and, you know, the dogs run around. It's amazing. But we're able to do all of those things because of what's happening outside the fence. The police have more to worry about than a bunch of people just having uh, maybe a bonfire that's a little bit too large. <laughs> so, you know, making making work in that backyard as a response to what's outside has been really nice because that place is a, is a respite for me. You know, it's some place that I feel safe, some place that I feel loved, some place that I feel happy uh, with people that I love and. It, it's it's interesting as a contrast to the previous work. Right. Um, so I've I've been doing that. Also, it's it's kind of irrelevant, but all of that work is in black and white, and that's sort of how I got started taking pictures. So it's just nice to sort of like go back to my roots photographically, mm-hmm. um, and also just make really sweet pictures. Um, I'm also working on a project for a nonprofit in the city. That's that's looking at sort of the uh, a housing crisis that exists here in the city of of people that are living in, uh, for lack of a better word, housing conditions that are that are tantamount to to third world living conditions. Mm. So you know, Philadelphia has, I believe, like one of the highest amounts of generational homeowners in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So just because people are living in a home that has no mortgage doesn't necessarily mean that they can afford to maintain it. Right. You also have people in fixed incomes, low income that are renters that are um, living in really tough places. And they, uh, if they call the landlord, the landlord will illegally evict them. And if they call licenses and inspections, L&I is going to condemn the property and they're going to be on the street regardless. So they're kind of just keeping themselves not saying anything and living in in situations that are really just sort of unhealthy physically and emotionally. So I have one last question for you, and that's who should I talk to next? Who, Whose creative process would you like to learn more about? Uh, I would like you to talk to Hannah Price. She's an artist here in Philly who's making some really smart, socially relevant work, and I'd love to hear more about her process. I think that'll fit in right after your interview. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for being on The Process. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. That was photographer Jordan Baumgarten. Find his work at jordanbaumgarten.com. Thank you for listening to the Creative Process Podcast. I'm Dave Hopper. This has been a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. The music is Big Screen by Silent Partner.